Welcome to The District, a podcast about politics and culture from the spectator world. I'm your host, Teresa Mall, and I'm joined today by Charlie Pagley. He is the CEO of American Bantam Car Corporation. And um, Charlie reached out to me because I just wrote an article about car culture in America and how I think that there's kind of a sad decline going on just in the number of young people who are interested in cars in general and rebuilding them and all those neat sort of things. If you haven't read the article, I don't know what's wrong with you. Go online right this instant and check it out. But for the for the moment, we have Charlie here with us. And um, you told me about something that's pretty exciting that's actually happening in the world of American car culture. So why don't you explain to our listeners what Bantam USA is all about and what you guys are getting up to? Well, American Bantam is a company that was originally founded back in 1935, and it's actually the uh, American Bantam actually invented the Jeep. So during in in the run up to World War II, there was a need for a kind of a mechanical version to replace the horse in the cavalry, and American Bantam was tasked with building the first Jeep, building the first production. Uh, series of Jeeps. They were the sole supplier of Jeeps to the U.S. Army during 1940. And then uh, in the first half of 1941, they were one of the two major suppliers, the other being Ford. Um, So we came at American Bantam uh, about about 10 years ago and said, uh, we looked at the off-road automotive space in the United States and and a lot uh, very on topic with your article, we looked at car, especially the off-road vehicles, and we saw the market was kind of divided into two spaces. One was a, like the Jeep Wrangler, a very high-end gentrified vehicle. Actually, now they don't call the Jeep Wrangler a Jeep anymore. It's an SUV. Jeep, Jeep the brand, refers to it as a Wrangler SUV, not a Jeep, not a Jeep-type vehicle. And then there's another class of vehicles in the United States called a UTV, which is a utility terrain vehicle. Uh, they're not legal to be driven on roads, but they're very, very popular. And they're very uh, exactly into what you in your article were talking about as far as uh, you know the car culture things. People who drive UTVs, they like to fix them, they like to customize them. Um, but the same thing goes with people who drive Wranglers and actually drive those vehicles off-road. And off-roading is a huge industry, not only in the United States, but but globally. But nobody's really making a vehicle that is street legal that uh, you can you can you know drive out of the dealership and and drive it on uh, drive it off-road. And of course, Jeep will say, well, their Rubicon can be driven uh, off-road, but Rubicon comes with carpeting. And if you're going to drive, say, an off-road vehicle in you know, the desert or or in a in a sandy place or, or on a farm where there's uh, little gifts spotted around by some cows. You really don't want carpeting in your vehicle. So you uh, so so there there we saw a market gap and we said, uh, how can we meet that? Is there a market for this? And the and that's how we decided, hey, um, the uh there's this company called American. There's this brand called American Bantam. Let's see if we can revive this brand and launch a vehicle that meets the needs of people who really just want to uh, drive their cars off-road and you know, but they want to be able to to drive that car down the 
highway as well. So it looks like your offerings are kind of a mix between the older Jeeps of the World War II Jeeps. Whenever they originally came out, they were kind of, in my mind, I still see some around. Um, there's a guy who has a junkyard here in town who who uses them for parts and things. But they're almost more like a, a little heavier-duty golf cart in my mind. They, you know, they didn't have a lot in the way of safety and, you know, they were sturdy and they, they got the job done, got you from point A to point B, but weren't exactly, you know, something that many people would probably want to drive on the road today. So it seems like yours is kind of hearkening back to the more simplistic, um, utilitarian styling of the original Jeep, but then also maybe something closer to what we would think of as a side-by-side or an ATV, which are just super popular these days. I know around here people people make a weekend of it every weekend. It's it's what people do here. They drive around in the woods and the old strip mines and they go out and they get dirty. So is that closer to, to you're kind of combining those two elements of, of the off-road culture, the side-by-sides with something that's street legal, but not super fancy, doesn't have all the bells and whistles as a, an expensive Jeep would have? Exactly. Except for we, we still like to have all the bells and whistles. One of the things about a UTV is that they um, their engines are designed to produce incredible num- amounts of horsepower and large amounts of torque. And what that does to engine life is it shortens it dramatically. It also creates really bad emissions. So the average UTV will emit about 11x, 11 times the pollution that a normal automobile will emit. Uh, but they need to be built that way in order to get the horsepower that they need to, in order to drive, you know, be competitive when driving off-road. Well, so what we've done is we've, uh, we're in the process of, drive, of developing a hybrid drivetrain, which combines electric together with uh, the gasoline. And um, what that will do is give us all of the horsepower, all the torque that these U- UTV engines uh, produce, but with a much, much, much cleaner, uh, a much better uh, emissions footprint. So that, you know, what if if somebody replaces their UTV with American Bantam, what well, we, we're going to launch with a BRC-20 and a BRC-22, which is a, basically a 20 is a two-door and a 22 is a four-door, they will reduce the carbon footprint of their off-road vehicle by by about 95%. So I think a big selling point with your vehicle, you I think you advertise it as being lighter weight. And from the pictures, it looks like it's smaller than something that you'd see driving on the highway or driving around town, which is appealing. But um, is this something that you could or would use as an everyday driver, as a little commuter vehicle around town or something that you'd want to drive to work every day? Or is this something that's like, oh, I have to cross a road or I have to drive into town to get gas or, you know, I want to I want to stop for a bite to eat. So I can technically legally do it, but it's not really something you'd want to do every day or. Uh, well, I mean, I think that depends that. on a lot of your on your personality. But, you know, absolutely. You could drive. I've driven our prototype vehicles over mountains, over on the highways, and uh, you know uh, you could absolutely drive it every day. The uh, but it doesn't have the the creature comfort comforts that you know a normal a normal SUV would have. So uh, you know you'd have probably louder wind noise. It's a convertible, so you're going to have the all the trappings that go with that. But yeah, you could definitely you know. You could definitely use it as your daily driver, and I think, 
I don't think that that's our typical customer, but if you're a hunter and you want to, you know, you got to drive a couple hundred miles to go hunting. When you get there, you really don't want this very loud UTV that you drive into a, uh, into the woods or uh, into the place where you're going hunting. Uh, the beautiful thing about our hybrid drivetrain is you can turn on electric. You're completely silent. Uh, no, no noise, no emissions. So the animals can't hear you. They can't, well, they can, they can probably hear, still hear you because, you know, they'll hear the, the leaves crushing as you, as you're driving on by, but they won't, uh, they won't smell you. They won't, well, <laughs> they'll still smell you. They just won't smell the emissions of the vehicle, but you know, it's a, it's definitely a vehicle that you can drive a couple hundred miles, uh, go out and play and then drive a couple hundred miles back. If your daily drive is, you know, uh, 10, 15 minutes. Yeah, for sure. Definitely. If your daily drive is an hour, uh, driving in, you know, for, into DC every, every day or something like that, then I don't know if this would be the vehicle for you. It seems like you're kind of trying to make the, uh, the outdoors a little more accessible to people who, who want to, you know, maybe they can't afford several vehicles for every single little hobby that they might have. But this is like, oh, I could have my daily driver and I can also have this car as a backup. I don't need to have seven vehicles. I don't need to have an $80,000, you know, Jeep <laughs> with all the all the fancy stuff. It doesn't necessarily have to be comfortable, but, you know, you could use it. So that's really cool. When do you have, do you have an ATA for these vehicles hitting the market when people can, uh, can get their hands on one? And what price point are you looking at? And if people want, if they just can't wait for them to be on the market, can people come and look at them? Are they going to be, can they visit their your factory and check them out or be at well, trade shows? Um, th- those are all topics that will be, that I'm going to be discussing in the rest of the conversations that I'm having uh, this afternoon. But I'll answer a couple of them. Uh, we look to be manufacturing vehicles in the United States in 2024. And the price point, for our hybrid electric after the $7,500 rebate uh, will be below $30,000. And let's see, can you look at a vehicle right now? No, we don't have, we're still uh, finalizing some things on design. So uh, no, we're not showing vehicles to the public other than the vehicles that you see on our website, but we're, we're right now redoing the website. So Hopefully in the next, by September, there'll be a new website up there. Uh, in fact, actually, no, by, by August, uh, by the first or second week of August, we should have a new website, uh, which will have a lot of more vehicle information on it. I don't know. That was, uh, oh, trade shows in the United States. I have to get through my meetings this afternoon before I can answer that question. <laughs> All right. Well, I will stand by. I'm getting ready to go to the Mid-Atlantic Overlanding Festival here in Huntington County in Pennsylvania. And overlanding, I know, has really ex- been exploding in recent years in the United States. I know it's been in Australia and South Africa, other places for, for decades, but it's really taking off here. So I've been looking for the perfect overlanding vehicle to get in all those crevices and to get stuck and unstuck easily. Um, is this is this going to be my drive? I mean, I like the price point that you you mentioned. So what aspects should I be, be looking at in, in the Bantam vehicles that would make it perfect for me to have to go confidently into the wilderness and, and have my outdoor adventures. What makes this vehicle 
perfect for someone like me. Well, I think the the biggest thing that makes a, our vehicles really, really competitive in the off-road industry is that, you know, in the United States, if you're driving a UTV, there's only about 20, 22, 23 states where you can drive it uh, on streets, but you can't drive it on highways in any state. So if you want to go any uh, real distance, I, I don't know what the law is there in uh, Pennsylvania, but, you know, for, for instance, in Illinois, you can, in Southern Illinois, you can drive a UTV on the roads and the, you know, the sheriff isn't, isn't going to give you a problem. But if you want to drive a UTV into, into say, uh, Chicago, well, forget about it. So our vehicle, the beauty of it is that you can drive it on the roads. You can also drive it off-road. You can also drive it into Chicago. And um, you touched on something earlier about the weight. Our vehicle is weighs about two-thirds of what, le- less than two-thirds of what a comparable Jeep Wrangler weighs. So we're just much more, you know, it's a much more lighter, more out, off-road appropriate vehicle. And then the other the other key thing, I guess, is with our hybrid drivetrain, the uh, the torque and the horsepower, the acceleration that we get from having a motor that can, you know, go into ludicrous mode. And, uh, well, that's a trademark of Tesla. But, you know, the motor really does give you incredible horsepower uh, and incredible torque when you're at zero miles per hour. So if you want to try to, you know, drive up a rock or drive up, uh, the side of a hill, uh, you have that. And and that's what will really set us apart from the, com- the competition out there. Uh, you know, the, the basically are designed to be driven off-road, designed to be driven in a dirt, uh, in the dirt or in the water and the, in the sand and incredible power, incredible torque, even when you're not moving, even when you're, you know, going from, a stop. So uh, that's our goal to try to deliver to people the the features of UTV at the price point of a UTV, but also to make it a legal automobile that admits just a fraction of the pollution that a normal UTV will admit. And also very exciting that uh, that you plan to be 100% made in the USA as well. We talked about car culture in America declining, not just, I didn't mean just made in America cars, but car culture in general. But that's amazing that you are shooting to, to make that. That's another thing that I think people really appreciate, especially our listeners. <laughs> well, I don't know if there's anything, any car that's really 100% made in the United States. Because, you know, the way that the automobile industry in the United States is, has structured itself has just moved some things out, outside of the United States that will that are very, very difficult to make them come back. But we are a public benefit corporation, which means that in our certificate of incorporation, we include eight different tenets that we're going to abide by in the corporate governance of our company. And one of them is that we're going to, in the manufacturing of our vehicles, we're going to limit the number of robots that we include on our assembly line. And the reason for that is really because we look at the job market in the United States. We look at the, the um, and uh, naturally this, this was kind of a strategy before COVID, before, before everything that's happened in the last two years. But, you know, the manufacturing jobs that were around when I was growing up or that were around uh, in the 1980s and the 
before before I existed in the 1970s and the 1960s. Those jobs really don't exist anymore. You can't go to a uh, to a uh, automobile automobile manufacturer and say, "Hey, I want to I want to be a welder on your assembly line." And the reason is that all those jobs now are uh, robotic. So you know you might have human beings actually putting pieces of metal into a jig to get welded, but then they press a mut- button, the the robots close the jig, and then the robots start to to weld. Our goal is to have human beings doing those welds, and for the simple reason that it because we can do it. Our competition is a bunch of tubular steel welded vehicles with plastic body parts. The gaps on a UTV don't exist. You know, they might be half inch gaps or one inch gaps. uh, And they might, you know, you have some UTVs that might have uh, a better fit and finish, but they're all plastic. They're, they're not the best finish. They're, you know, they're not painted. So uh, we look at that and we say, well, why wouldn't we employ Americans to do this? Why wouldn't we want to give back to uh, whatever community that we we end up landing in? And we're we're talking with uh, different states right now. We're talking with probably five different state governments about where we want to sit situate our U.S. Uh, factory. But at least for this vehicle, for this series of vehicles, uh, it makes a uh, incredible sense for us to stick to the old way that automobiles were manufactured and that was human beings doing the welding all the parts are still held by a jig and you know to be honest that jig will be robotic to some sense i mean you'll have a button and it will close but it's certainly not a robot it's and it's and the the welding of the vehicles will be done by human beings so maybe we will be the last vehicles that will actually be made in the united states by human beings we're still going to have a lot of supply chain that's going to come from overseas, but our our bodies, at least, will be made in the USA. Absolutely. I love that. I think that's something that's really underlooked and undercovered by people in you know the mainstream media. We think about AI, the rise of technology, the rise of robots. Oh, things are going to become so much more efficient, so much faster. You don't even have to deal with anyone. You know, you can just do it on your phone, or you can just—it's automatic and the reasoning is, oh, well, then people won't have to do these jobs anymore and they can do other better, higher things or they can move on and have other jobs. But they don't ever really say what those jobs are. And, you know, people take pride in being able to weld. I come from an area where we had lots of manufacturing back in the 70s and 80s, as you mentioned. And now those jobs have gone away. They've gone overseas or in some cases they have been replaced by by robots. And these people they they don't have jobs now that a lot of them are unemployed they're on welfare or they're they've turned to drugs you know there's just i i I think it's a myth that (laughs) robots are going to come along and everyone's going to have a higher quality of life because they don't have to do these manual jobs anymore i just i don't see that happening so i think that's wonderful that you are sticking to your initiative of of giving humans and giving i think your your automobiles will be better off for it having a human touch i don't trust robots (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> well, you know, you you touched on one thing about uh, manufacturing jobs moving overseas, and we've done the math, and really, and this was before COVID, so back when a container coming from overseas was only, you know, probably $3,000, $3,500, and even when it was at that kind of math, we, we figured out that 
you know, the number of hours that it would take, the number of extra hours that it would take to do the assembly in the United States, the cost of doing the, the assembly in the United States, it's really a wash. There's, um, there's, there's maybe a $400 premium on the manufacturing cost of the car to, uh, to actually do what we want to do for our vehicles, at least, because our vehicles, you know, they're, they're off-road vehicles. You think of like an old CJ7 made by AMC before Chrysler took over Jeep. Um, you, you know, it's, we're not trying to compete with the Jeep SUVs that Stellantis is making. Those are beautiful cars, beautiful fit and finish, um, but they're not really... Uh, they've got carpeting in them. So they're not really appropriate for driving into a dust storm. Um, our vehicles are, are made to be driven in mud, water, uh, sand. So, so our vehicles, we can, we can do things that our competitors can't do. And we looked at the $400 and said, you know what, let's use that as a marketing cost. Let's do, you know, we're, we're going to spend on each vehicle, Polaris spends 9% of their revenue on marketing. So if we're selling a vehicle for $25,000, that means we have $2,500 of marketing dollars. Um, I'm sorry, 2000, 2000, just over $2,000 on marketing costs. Well, if we have to spend an extra $400 to, to give jobs to Americans, then oh, let's just take videos of those, of those employees. If, hey, if you want to come and work at American Bandit Factory, you got to, you got to sign a waiver to, that we can, uh, we can take videos of you while you're working so that we can, we can use that as a selling point for our vehicles and people who drive off road, they want to buy American cars. Um, they want to buy American products. So we look at that $400 and inside a, a $2,100, uh, advertising budget. And we say, if if the difference is only four hundred dollars, then we, we can use that in marketing. We can really really get people to say, "Hey, I want to buy an American Phantom." And and the the name, you know, having the word American, that wasn't my idea. That was a guy named Roy Evans, um, who who started the company and who started the original company in 1935 there, not far away from you, where you are in Pennsylvania. So he had the word American in it, and we just we just followed along. Well, I think if you're looking for a place to return to, Pennsylvania would be a great place to put your factory, <laughs> seeing as this is where you started it all. And we have lots of welders, well, we, lots of skilled laborers here, because that's in, that's in our heritage, as you know. <laughs> we've we've looked at pre Pennsylvania, but uh, to be honest, we're right now in negotiations to acquire a factory that, uh, I'm not going to say where it is, but it's but it's it's an ideal location. I, we actually I actually visited uh, Butler, Pennsylvania, where American Bantam was founded back in 1935. They bought out the assets of a company called American Austin. So that's where the American came from. Austin at the time, in the 1930s and 1920s, they were the uh, Lord Austin was kind of the the Henry Ford of the United Kingdom. Um, and so he his he he brought his cars to the United States to set up a factory in the United States, but they landed in 1929. And you can imagine, uh, I think they started the car, the company in 19 uh, in uh, February 20, February 20th, so, uh, February 23rd or something like that. Um, and you know, then the crash of 1929 came along, and and the company really never re recovered. 
And so uh, Roy Evans was their biggest customer. He ended up taking over the co company and completely redoing everything. He didn't take over the company. I should be clear. He took over. He bought out the assets. He started a completely new company. And, uh, you know, they started from scratch. They started with new, new vehicle designs and uh, a lot of new stuff. And they were also building on the shoulders of the, the people that were before them, as, as are we. Uh, we are, our design is, we're taking a lot of, we're learning a lot from our competition and the design of our vehicle. But the, uh, the funny thing is that all of those, all of the design of all of the off-road vehicles, whether you look at the Jeep uh, SUVs or the, uh, the Range Rovers, all of those, uh, their DNA all started with American Bantam as the, the very first company to uh, implement an off-road vehicle that looks anything like the Stellantis Jeep SUVs of today. Well, I would love to have you in Pennsylvania, but I'm just glad that you're staying in America regardless of where, where you end up. One other thing I just it just struck me how I knew that this was a lightweight vehicle, but I didn't realize it was as lightweight as you said, two-thirds of the weight of one of your standard UTVs. It obviously No, two-thirds of a Stellantis Jeep Wrangler. Oh, okay. But it obviously, if it's if it's uh, street legal, it has to apply with the the federal motor vehicle safety laws. Is does the lightweightness come in a lot of those bells and whistles? Like I'm guessing it doesn't have heated seats. I don't know. It it, it looks like it, they're mostly all going to be two doors. Um, how do you how do you make up for so much weight loss in your vehicles? Well, so we don't have much of an interior, right? And we don't have carpeting. We don't have a roof. We don't have a lot of the things that you would associate with the, um, you know, a lot of the soundproof proofing that are, that comes in your standard automobile, um, you know, built into the floor of every single modern automobile, you'll have a lot of soundproofing to make vehicles very silent. Um, our vehicles don't have that. Um, but as from, from a safety standpoint, our vehicles are, are designed to be driven off road. So we meet, we check off all the federal SMV, F, uh, uh, FMVSS regulations for uh, motor vehicle safety. Uh, we include uh, electronic stability protection in the uh, in our drivetrain to, you know, uh, protect the vehicle from skidding uh, when you're driving on a highway or driving on ice. But and that's kind of a the shame uh, or the difficulty really of of designing a vehicle for the United States, and that is because in in other markets they'll have different classes of vehicles. So you know you have one class for maybe an off-road vehicle that can be driven on legally on streets, and you'll have a uh, another class for sedans and another class for SUVs, and in each different class you know, in another class for pickup trucks. And in each different class, there's different different regulations that you have to meet. In the United States, it's much different. You know, in the United States, it's kind of one size fits, fits all. So we have to meet the same uh, safety regulations that a normal sedan or a minivan or, uh, you know, what have you will we'll meet. And we'll meet those uh, regulations. But remember, the people who are buying our vehicles are buying them to go off-road. So along with airbags and all those safety systems, 
will actually have a key that will allow you uh, our, to turn the vehicle on. That's a dongle, right? That's just a remote control kind of type thing. But if, you, but if you're driving off-road, you'll want to actually insert your key into the dash and then turn off those safety systems so you don't have airbags, so you don't have electronic, electronic stability protection, so that you're driving as an off-road vehicle. Because the last thing that you want to do is, you know, when you're driving along with, as an off-road vehicle and you, you bump into a big rock or something and you have your airbags explode into your face. So we have to be able to, to turn those things off. And... Uh, that's kind of one of the ironic things is because the vehicles that we're designing are, they have to be legal in the United States. And at the same time, we really want them to be safe for off-road drivers as well. So we have to, we have to kind of do double the engineering that a normal automobile would have to have to do. And in some, you know, maybe it doesn't make a lot of sense uh, from, from an off-road perspective, but, it makes a world of sense from a street legal perspective, from being able to drive it down the highway. Yeah, I guess those are things I never thought about. I guess you wouldn't really want traction control whenever you're, you know, off there and dune bugging around or mudding, as we call it here in this in this neck of the woods. So, um, yeah, that's it. Sounds like a really exciting project that you're working on, Charlie. And I hope that you'll keep us posted. If you need someone to test drive one of your vehicles, I would like to sign up for that. So <laughs> keep me in mind. Okay. <laughs> well, we're we're gonna definitely get to. Um, Get, definitely get to Pennsylvania. In fact, Pennsylvania might be one of our first stops because every year there's an American Bantam Jeep Festival. Uh, well, I should say every year when we don't have a COVID epidemic going on. But um, uh, there's an American Bantam Jeep Festival that, uh, that that happens every year in Butler, Pennsylvania. And we will definitely be participating in one of those events. And our hope is that we can do it sooner rather than later. But we have to we have to meet those government safety regulations and we have to check all those boxes. We'll definitely be, we're hoping that we'll be there next year, but we'll see. All right. Well, I'll see you there then. Okay. Fantastic. <laughs> Thank you for listening to this episode of The District. If you enjoyed it, don't forget to subscribe. You can find us wherever you listen to your podcasts. The Spectator World is a U.S. edition of the world's oldest magazine. To read more content on similar topics, visit spectatorworld.com.